As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, you see that inflation print that we just got? That <laughs> CPI print? I did. I logged on um, the terminal, especially at 8.30 um, in the evening here in Hong Kong to watch it. And it looks like we're seeing um, moderation in the price increases. Yeah. So we are recording this on August 11th. And we just had uh, the latest CPI report. And indeed, it did show some moderation, particularly on a sequential basis. Inflation readings, the CPI have been uh, quite elevated lately by historical standards. And there's this whole debate about whether it's transitory or some sort of new regime and what's causing it and so forth. And we'll uh, get into all that. But at least for this one month, and at least like on a sequential basis, we definitely saw a bit of a... uh, deceleration, used car prices, which had been absolutely soaring. It finally looks like that whole thing has uh, topped out a little bit. Yeah. And we've had such a um, heated debate over whether or not inflation is transitory or something more permanent. And I think the vociferousness of that debate kind of hints at something wider and more fundamental about the economic situation right now, which is that we're in a really unusual time. The recession that we saw um, during COVID was basically unlike any others. It only lasted for a couple months. In the end, um, we had record stimulus. And so that kind of means that no one's really sure exactly what the recovery is going to look like. And it's hard to look at previous recoveries um, in order to make an analogy to today. Yeah. And inflation in particular, like, you know, we get economic data points literally every day or virtually almost every day. But inflation (laughs) is one of those that really gets people going in a way that other data points (laughs) don't. People, you know, we had that uh, recent episode with Enrico Momandier. People feel it. They feel it at the grocery store. They attribute it to policies when it's up. They attribute it to policies that they don't like. They attribute it to Fed. They attribute it to spending and so forth. Uh, Inflation just uh, it gets people going. It does indeed. And it's very easy for people to sort of overlay um, their own thoughts and feelings and biases on inflation. So people kind of see what they want to see. You know, cherry picking the data is something that goes on quite a lot. And and again, like. In the current environment, there is a reason that you would strip out some 
unusual activity in things like used car prices. But then you get into the dangerous territory of are you basically stripping everything out that's actually rising um, and obscuring what's happening in the market? Inflation, ex-inflation. All right. Well, I'm very (laughs) excited. You know, I said, uh, you know, inflation always gets people going. Uh, I'm very excited because we have a guest today who almost never needs any uh, anything to get him going. Very. He's (laughs) long been one of my favorite people to interview. I've talked to him several times on TV, but we've never had him on the podcast before. We're going to be speaking with uh, David Wu. who's formerly the head of global rates, global FX, global EM, fixed income and economic research at Bank of America. He's a veteran there of 10 years and recently left. And now he is, he's a blogger. He's like us. Uh, he's a blogger. <laughs> he has uh, David Wu Unbound, where he talks about all this stuff, macro things, things going on in society, the data and so forth. And always one of my favorite people to talk to. So sort of a perfect person to uh, kick off a sort of like, let's take stock of the macro situation right now. Uh, David, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. It's my total pleasure. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. It's always a treat to talk to you, David. Let's start with that uh, inflation print. I'm sure you uh, have been looking at it for the last half hour, as have uh, me and Tracy. How would you put it into context? What's your take on it? And how does it fit more broadly in where you see uh, the overall inflation situation right now in the U.S.? I think, you know, I think, you know, we have to, first of all, put things in perspective. I don't think anybody in their right mind thought that the sort of 6 percent, 7 percent inflation was sustainable. Everybody knew, you know, that it had to do with these one-off factors like used cars, computers, you know, things that have been affected by supply chain basically breakdown. So therefore, the spike in price ought to be temporary as supply chain basically came back on track. So the question really is, you know, so if it's not 6 or 7%, what is it? Now, the fact is that notwithstanding, you know, basically the sharp drop in basic inflation for used car prices, you know, this month, if you look at the core inflation, it was still up 0.3%. I mean, that is an annualized rate of close to 4%. I mean, that's like higher than anything we've ever seen, you know, basically, you know, basically in a run up to COVID and more recently. So I would say that forget about like, you know, basically whether it's whatever, six or seven, the fact that it is even running at 3%, 4%, that's a problem. Because the point here is that the whole world economy is currently calibrated on the assumption that the Fed funds rate is going to remain very, very low for a very long time. The only way that's going to be possible is that inflation doesn't become a problem. You don't need inflation at 5 or 6% to become a problem. All you need is inflation at 3% and the Fed has got a huge headache of, ahead of them and so will the market. So, so let's not beat around the bush. I don't really, I'm not, I'm one of these people behind the table saying, oh, we're going to see double, double digit inflation anytime soon. Given that the whole entire market has been gotten used to the idea that the inflation was always going to remain somewhere below 2%, allowing the Fed to basically carry on with this very accommodative stance. If inflation just goes above 2%, if it just goes to 3%, the world is going to have a huge problem. Um, we've been talking a lot about the Fed's new framework uh, on the show and the idea of average inflation targeting. And I'm wondering, you know, is that something that you buy into in the sense that you think the Fed is actually going to be more flexible um, when it comes to inflation. Is that something that could maybe buy it a bit more time and um, put off uh, a rate rise? Tracy, no, honestly, I think the whole 
averaging inflation was a gimmick. Mm. And I'll tell you what the gimmick was. The gimmick was to basically help them convince the market to drive interest rates lower, <laughs> right? Because they're going to tell you, oh, well, even when the inflation goes about 2%, we're not going to hike rates anytime soon. Therefore, you know, the market, so in some sense, it was stronger for guidance than what Yellen introduced, whatever, five, six years ago. But the point here is if inflation really starts to go up from 2 to 3%, 3 to 4%, you think the Fed is going to be sitting there twiddling their thumbs? Because they're going to be very nervous about the return of inflation expectations. You know, it took, just think about what Volcker had to do to crush inflation expectation in the early 1980s. It had to basically bring the engineer a recession, the U.S. economy, to crush inflation expectation. Inflation expectation, I mean, you know, anything, you know, economists don't know that much. Honestly, the truth is economists know much less than anybody give them credit for. If there's one <laughs> thing they know and they're afraid of is basically inflation expectation is like a Pandora's box. Once you open it, it's going to be difficult to close it. So this is why if inflation starts to edge higher, forget about the whole idea of inflation, averaging inflation target, the Fed will go. They will have no choice but to go because they realize what would be at that stake. Because if they don't go and inflation expectation goes up, and then having to bring it down down the road is going to be that much more costly. This is why I think, you know, the whole inflation averaging business was nothing more than just empty talk at the end of the day. Well, okay, so you, as we point out, even if you strip out used cars, there's sort of this underlying inflationary pace right now that's uh, well above, uh, that's enough above, in your view, enough above 2% to create a problem. How come? Like, what's the explanation for it? So, I mean, you know, we can all look at the data, but we need a theory to explain it or to understand where it's going. Why is it? Yeah, I mean, Joe, you asked, that's the right question. That's exactly the right question. And I'm going to tell you the answer. I mean, for, for this worth, you know, I write about it actually in my, my own blog, which is this, right? The last 20 years, I don't have to tell you, Keynesian School of Economics has been on the ascendancy. I can tell you this wasn't always the case because 20 years ago when I got my PhD at Columbia in economics, you know, at the time, it was the neoclassical school of economics that was in vogue. And these had been the main schools of economics that had been, you know, in rivalry for much of the last 50 years, you could argue. Now, what is the essential difference between the Keynesian school versus the neoclassical school? The neoclassical school, by the way, is the Chicago school. You can think about it that way. The main difference is the Keynesian school emphasizes negative demand shocks, whereas the neoclassical school emphasizes negative supply shock. Now, what is a negative demand shock? Negative demand shock is like, oh, the dot-com bubble bursting in 2000, okay, which unleashed this massive negative wealth effect. Negative demand shock is like, oh, September, you know, basically 11, that crushed confidence and caused people to pull back their spending. Negative demand shock is like what happened in 2008 following the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which basically caused all the banks to pull back in terms of their credit lending, which basically forced a negative demand shock. And then the Keynesians argue, and rightly so, when you have a negative demand shock, the right thing to do is to basically engage in proactive, okay, fiscal and monetary expansion to offset the negative demand shock in order to bring the economy back to full, full, full employment equilibrium. This is why the last 20 years, 
This, the reason why Keynesian economics did so well was because one after another, all these shocks, as I said, the dot-com bubble bursting, September 11, 2008, were all negative demand shocks. Now, guess what? What is COVID, you might ask? I can tell you if, if COVID is anything at all, it's not a negative demand shock. In my view, it's a negative supply shock. And by the way, just think about this. I mean, how is it affecting supply? I don't have to tell you. Right now, for example, you look at, you know, global freight prices. Global freight rates for containers going through the roof right now. It's a, it went basically double last year. It doubled already this year, showing no signs of moderation. You know why? Because right now in Asia, where basically the pandemic is basically breaking out once again, and then countries are not allowing, okay, these containment ships to offload their cargoes. <laughs> So as a result, thousands of ships right now around the world are being stranded at their ports, not being able to offload their cargoes, not to mention the sailors, the crew. Now, that's a negative supply shock to the extent that COVID is actually, you know, has basically reduced ability of the economy to basically to respond to increased demand. Now, what else is basically a negative supply shock? Think about this. All these women, we have seen a massive drop in labor participation rate of women in the United States in the last basically 18 months. Why is that? They're not even looking for a job, these women who just simply left the labor force, because it's very simple. Because as long as COVID right now, it's like, well, there's no vaccine for children. As a result, women are now having to stay home to look after their young children who cannot go to school. Now, if COVID is going to be here to stay, you know what? Or that for that matter, if we don't have vaccine anytime soon for children, guess what? you're going to see a large part of the labor force basically disappearing. <laughs> That's a negative supply shock. Let me tell you this. If you look at a very basic economics supply and demand shock, which all your viewers have heard about, and that's why they're listening to this program, a negative demand shock is deflationary. But guess what? A negative supply shock is inflationary. Your supply curves move to the left. It pushed down employment. It pushed up prices. So when you are basically, when the Fed and the U.S. government unleash massive fiscal stimulus to try to offset a negative supply shock, all it's going to do is basically push up inflation. That is, by the way, and I'm telling you this, this is why the neoclassical school framework thinking about recession, about prices, is the more relevant framework in this particular point in time because of COVID. I would say, I'm not saying that COVID is only a negative supply shock, because maybe there's a little bit of negative demand shock, at least in the beginning, when it first hit, when it hurt confidence and so on and so forth. But I think the longer this thing drags out, it's becoming more of a negative supply shock. And then yet the Fed and the Biden administration continue to respond to COVID as though it were a negative demand shock. And that, in my view, is going to be a very, very dangerous game to play. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Can we dive into um, the demand side a little bit more? So I remember, you know, early last year, people were talking about how this would permanently scar consumers, particularly in America. You know, this huge global crisis, um, people losing their jobs, having to stay inside, a really sort of unique and terrible experience for a lot of people during a global pandemic. How would you classify U.S. consumers now? Because if anything, it seems like they've emerged on the other side of this much more prepared to spend, it looks like. Exactly. Because the, the honest truth, Tracy, the, 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 I mean, the one thing I wouldn't have forecasted, I mean, you know, like you have like a, a Martian who just landed on planet Earth looking at what's happened in the last year. I guarantee you nobody, no genius, okay, Nobel Prize economists could have predicted what? Which is that somehow after the biggest, basically, crisis they hit the world in 100 years, that somehow U.S. household balance sheet has improved and their cash flows improved. I don't have to tell you, U.S. household net worth as a share of disposable income is now at all-time high because we've seen a massive rally in the stock market, unbelievably. We've seen a massive appreciation in home prices. So as a result, Americans who own stocks and houses are far richer today than they were a year ago, ironically. At the same time, COVID has driven down interest rate as a result, debt payment as a share of disposable income for American is basically at an all-time low at the same time. Meanwhile, if you don't have any money, guess what? You know what? For one thing, the banks are begging you to borrow. If you look at actually the senior loan officer survey, the willingness of banks to lend you money, credit card for people who have no money is at all-time high right now. On top of that, you know what? If you really don't have any money, you know what? Biden has promised to basically make sure you do not miss the party right now. You know, I don't have to tell you, the big news the last two weeks was the fact that, you know what? Biden has decided to suspend the moratorium. <laughs> I mean, basically extend the moratorium on eviction. Again, if you cannot pay rent, no problem. You can stay on and go on a vacation, meanwhile, okay? And worry about paying rent down the road because we're going to make sure you don't get evicted. Meanwhile, last week, of course, they also came under pressure from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Now you cannot pay your student loans. They've also extended the student loan moratorium until basically October. So, and then now there's talk about maybe possibly extending the, uh, the enhanced benefits, federal basically unemployment insurance benefit to make sure. I mean, think about this. I mean, the, the amount of benefits that people were getting, including the enhanced benefit, most of the people who lost their jobs were actually getting more money from the benefits than what they were earning before. <laughs> so you tell me which American has actually lost out. Sure, some people have lost their family. That kind of thing is all very sad. But economically, yeah, <laughs> basically because of policy, which I think we're going to have to pay for dearly down the road, has made sure that everybody's better off. So against this backdrop, yeah, I'm not surprised Americans are basically uh, are, are about to basically spend some serious money. What do, you, what do you mean? So people say that a lot. We're going to have to pay for these policies down the road. And that's always, you know, I've heard that all my life long before COVID or any of these. You know, I heard it about TARP and I heard it about all this. What does that mean specifically to you? Because although it's true 
that uh, there has been this uh, massive, uh, by historical standards, fiscal expansion. Some of it is coming to an end. We've seen a reduction in the unemployment insurance expansion. Most likely, I think most people do not expect that to be continued, though I guess there uh, is some debate. We still do have a significant employment hole, uh, although that uh, does seem, you know, by some estimates, there's still 8 million jobs short of where we would be had it not been for uh, the uh, crisis. So what do you actually see as the, what does paying for it look like? Let's look at the numbers here. So, I mean, forget about anything else. Let's look at 2020, right? 2020, the global economy contracted by 3.6%. Okay. The economy was growing about 6% before that. So the foregone output last year was about 10% of global GDP, which comes to about $9 trillion, right? That was how much global GDP foregone basically lost, if you like. On top of that, based on the IMF's number, $15 trillion of fiscal spending has now been taken out by governments around the world to finance whatever they're firefighting. So 15 billion, 15 trillion plus 9 trillion is $24 trillion. Not just for 2020. You say, well, what's, what's $24 trillion? These days we talk about trillions as though they were nothing. Let's put that in perspective. Okay. Let's put that in perspective. I don't know if people realize this, but you know what? If you look at the combined wealth, of the 2,755 billionaires in the world. So if you take all the billionaires in the world, you add up all their money, it's only $13 trillion, by the way. Okay. So even if we were to confiscate all the money from all the richest billionaires in the world, it's not enough to basically even fill the hole. Now, another way to look at this, you say, well, what can you buy with $24 trillion? You must think about it that way. Now, think about this. You know, you could argue today the most... You know, the ultimate symbol of wealth these days is to buy sports teams and luxury real estate. But, you know, you could buy the 50 most valuable teams in the world. I'm talking about like from the L.A. Lakers to, I don't know, United, you know, basically uh, Manchester United. You can buy the 50 most valuable teams in the world for just one hundred and seventy billion dollars. Compared with the $24 trillion I just told you is the sum that, you know, that cost the, the world basically from COVID just in 2020. Do you know you can buy all of Manhattan's land for $1.7 trillion? <laughs> Again, COVID costs us $24 trillion. Do you know what? You know what it is? I figured it out. You know, you know, you know what $24 trillion really mean? With $24 trillion, we can basically feed the 700 million people in the world who suffer from chronic nourishment. We can provide clean water and basic sanitation for everyone in the world. We can provide education for all the children in the world who are not able to attend school. On top of that, we can protect all the endangered species from extinction, okay? Which only costs us about $76 billion a year. In other words, just the cost of last year is basically foregone GDP and the fiscal cost is enough to make the world a much better place. In other words, the way I think about this is, okay, is that now we, as though that before the crisis, there was nobody went hungry at night, nobody went without clean water, all the children went to school, animals live in total peace. And now, guess what? After COVID, just one year, 700 million people are going hungry every night. More than a billion people don't have any safe water. Basically, about 500 million people are not going to school when they should. And then, guess what? 
Animals are dying left and right. That is the cause just in 2020, not to mention beyond. Now, I can tell you something else. You might say, well, when are we going to pay this price? That obviously, you know, is immediately tied to the whole inflation story. The reason why Yellen, and this is why I have no respect for people like Yellen, she keeps talking about, oh, well, if interest rates are zero, then there's no cost. Well, let's just take out more debt if the interest rate is zero. But she's assuming that inflation is never going to go back up. I just told you, if COVID turns out to be a negative supply shock, then everything they're doing right now is going to be pushing up inflation. And pushing up inflation, unless they want inflation to go out of control, which I don't think they do. The Fed will have no choice but to raise interest rates. When it starts to raise interest rates, that's when, that's the day we start paying for, basically, the cost. And it's going to be a big cost. I want to ask a slightly different question based on that Yellen comment. But, you know, you were at BAML for a very long time, I think uh, about 10 years. And your new blog is called David Wu Unbound. Is the suggestion that, I don't know, that you were sort of bound um, in terms of what you could say when you were at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch? Tracy, you know, let me tell you something. You know, you know, you know what really basically sort of like the, the day of reckoning for me at Bank of America, you know, by the way, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't want to say I have only good things to say about Bank America. I was there for 10 years. I did great. The bank treated me great. I couldn't be any happier. That's the honest truth. So my leaving Bank America has nothing to do with how the bank treated me or anything like that. I have always thought that they pay me much more than actually I was worth. But nevertheless, you know what? I'm not going to complain. Now, I'll tell you what really got to me. It's a sort of sequence of events, one of which was what happened in January, February this year. Now, I don't have to remind you Right. You know, the one point, whatever, six trillion dollar fiscal stimulus package that got through very quickly in January, as soon as the new administration was sworn in. Now, that one point six trillion, I can tell you any reasonable economist will tell you it was not just excessive. It was probably unnecessary. Now, it's very interesting to me how many economists came out speaking up against it. Obviously, not a single one on Wall Street. But literally, you know, the people who spoke up against it are like Olivia Blanchard, who is a former chief economist at the IMF, who's now retired. Who doesn't care anymore? I mean, he has no, he doesn't have to pay the political price for saying things that may not be politically correct. I can tell you who other person can. John Cochran, who used to be at Berkeley, who's now at Hoover Institute, who's been banished already to the North Pole, if you like, who basically wrote about it. In other words, to me, what was shocking in January and February was that we just decided to write this massive check that was completely unnecessary, and yet not a single academic economist, okay, really spoke up, with the exception of a few honest and courageous people. They, they didn't mind to be canceled because either they were already in retirement or they were already basically in North Pole. They've already been canceled. So from that point of view, this is what really, it was a wake-up call for me. Because then I realized that the whole cancel culture has gone much too far. I can tell you so many of my professor friends, you know, classmates at Columbia who are now basically teaching a major university, Ivy League, who tell me they do not dare to speak up today because they might lose their job, they might lose their tenure, they might have students basically complaining about them. That is the climate today in America. And it is starting and it was getting onto Wall Street. And I said, you know what, I got to do something about this. Because I benefited from Wall Street. I mean, I, 
I've spent 20 years on Wall Street. One thing I learned more than anything else on Wall Street is that Wall Street is about the celebration of differences. Just think about this. Every day, people are going on your show, you know, debating about A and B. Is inflation going up, inflation going down? You know what? Wall Street is about the celebration of differences. If somebody today is buying Tesla stock, it's because somebody else is selling it. So I wanted basically, I decided to set out my own in order to basically bring this very important lesson from Wall Street that I become, has been a very big part of my success to basically the general public. That's what I want to do. On this question of like who gets to criticize, I mean, the stimulus, I mean, also Larry Summers was a critic of some of the size of the spending. And of course, he continues to have a significant media platform. Jason Furman, former official within uh, the Obama administration, critic, also listened to. I mean, I think that there really are uh, economists who, uh, to use your term, they're not banished to the North Pole, who have uh, been criticized. But I want to... uh, Can we just basically answer that question? If you read, for me, Larry Summers has no credibility whatsoever when it comes to this. Because he has been, if you, I don't have to tell you, I don't have to remind you, Joe, you remember this as well as I do. For the last 10 years, he's been advocating <laughs> massive fiscal stimulus. Remember, he was the one who was talking about stag, stag, stagnation, that doesn't the that only give one who can do this is basically. In, in theory, so, why, doesn't that give him more credibility as someone who. No, I don't think so, because I would say that they, they were following his blueprint. In fact, if you actually read his Washington Post article, it was pussyfooting around. It was like, it was. Nothing. It was not like, you know, he really came out forcefully. He felt that he had to basically say something. <laughs> and that's, that's the feeling I got. Certainly, I, I, you know, again, go back to read the article and see if you actually, Larry Summer is, is not someone who puts his foot around. He basically makes sure that you hear him when he speaks. And in the way he wrote that article, I thought there were too many ifs. Anyway. Just going back to this question, you say, okay, there are all these critics of the stimulus who had secret felt like they couldn't say anything and because of you know whatever be, uh in your in your in your characterization cancel culture that being said okay let's look at what's actually happened while it is true that we have had some elevated inflation prints and there's probably reason to think uh you know that that even if there's a cool down um we are going to get them uh they may remain as such for a while We also see an extremely robust labor market recovery, nearly 2 million jobs in the last two months. We did see a massive hit to incomes. And I know that we've focused a lot, say, on this show um, about a lot of the supply chain disruptions. And we've talked a lot about containers as well as you have. But on the other hand, small business incomes, service sector incomes absolutely decimated for several months. And we don't really have the counterfactual of what it would have looked like without the PPP program and the expanded UI. But huge swaths of the economy, their incomes, at least for, the, for several months after the virus hit, would have basically gone to zero and that would have crushed their spending and that would have crushed rents. And, you know, you talked about some of the uh, the eviction moratorium. On the other hand, there are millions of landlords who probably wouldn't have been able to collect any rent had it not been for the UI and some of these programs. So why is it not reasonable to say, I mean, that there were really truly shocks to both the demand and supply and, while it's, and that the supply side is absolutely not uh, sorted out? that the demand side has more or less remained uh, smooth thanks to the uh, ongoing fiscal expansion. Right. 
You asked a very good question. And again, I don't want to sound overly political. I would argue, I, in my humble opinion, I think Secretary Mnuchin was probably the best Secretary of U.S. Treasury we've had for a very, very long time. Okay. One of the reasons, I mean, there, he did a lot of great things. He's just someone who was just obviously a bit of an introvert. So he, he didn't know how to basically, you know, do his own PR. Now, and because his association with, you know, with Trump, you know, people didn't want to give him any credit for anything he did. But he was the one who came up with PPP. If you think about PPP, okay, PPP was basically a supply side response by the last administration, right? Because the whole idea was, well, these businesses are going to go bankrupt, you know, and there's a cost to companies going bankrupt because, like, you know, it's easy for companies to go bankrupt, but it will be difficult for these companies to come back, okay? Therefore, the whole PVP, okay, the payroll, basically, uh, program was to help small business survive the shock. And then Mnuchin also understood that, you know what, there will be some money that was going to be stolen in that process, right? Because as we know, like a lot of companies basically fake their whatever, you know, payrolls and basically got the money that they shouldn't have. But it doesn't really matter. But that was a good example of a supply response to help basically mitigate the real, basically the long-term cost of the crisis by preventing a large number of businesses from simply going bankrupt. That was the right policy. But what happened earlier this year, when Biden and with the basic endorsement of Yellen sent a check to everybody again for $1,200, that is not the supply side policy. Especially at the time already, U.S. household savings was like 8%, 9%, 10%. You know, if people had that kind of, we're sitting, if you look at average saving rates, never been higher. So Americans were sending us so much savings, if they're not spending it, it was not because they didn't have the money. Presumably because, you know what, there was no place to spend it. Because, you know what, they wanted to go out to the restaurant. The restaurants were closed. Maybe they bought all the computers they had. And you can see what's happening right now, by the way. This last month, you know, you saw the non-farm payroll number last week. This is the fourth month in a row that hospitality and leisure created more jobs than all the other private sectors combined, my friend. Because Americans are rushing out to basically eat out to basically hit the road on vacation and so on and so forth. So from that point of view, again, what I'm saying is this. I'm not saying that any fiscal response is wrong. I have no doubt that last year, the aggressive fiscal response was correct. It was calibrated. And I love the PPP program because that made a lot of sense to me. And on top of that, there was also more assuasion placed on the banks not to foreclose, okay, on basically businesses or for that matter, mortgages. These were supply side response that was basically pushed by the last administration. This administration came in, the first thing they want to do is spend more. And they give people who didn't need the money to spend more. And that's what I've got a problem with. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. 
Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to widen out the conversation um, a little bit more because we've been focusing a lot on the U.S., but you know, I'm over here in Asia, and one thing that's been happening here is we've seen a resurgence in COVID cases. Um, the Delta variant is uh, spreading in Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, places like that. We have um, some cases in China again, and I'm watching the PMIs, and they seem to be rolling over for some very important economies in terms of the global supply chain, um, but also potentially demand. And even China is getting close to um, that 50 mark that is the difference between um, expansion and contraction. So how much does China and broader Asia matter when it comes to the global recovery? And and how much does, I guess, the variations in, in the economic recovery um, complicate the global picture? The difference between Asia and the rest of the world It's very simple. Asia was fighting a different battle than the rest of the world during the entire COVID pandemic. You know, and Asia was successful, you know, in terms of their strategy coping with COVID by simply, you know, pursuing an elimination strategy, right? I don't have to tell you. Great example is Taiwan, right? And now Australia. I mean, they were just, they basically shut down their whole country so that it was impossible (laughs) for anybody to even get in. I mean, I should know this. My parents live in Taiwan. I can tell you it was impossible. So as a result, Asia became too complacent. They were able to contain, basically keep the basically COVID at bay by keeping it outside basically their countries. They didn't aggressively try to get vaccines. And that's, of course, the big story, right? So, and then what has really happened, I've always said China got super lucky. I don't know if China... If, you know, if, if the virus was bio, biologically engineered or not, I don't really care. What I think is China got really insanely lucky last year because we all know the virus, okay, once it got out of China on its way to Europe, became literally 100% more contagious. By the time it started to spread in Europe, it had already mutated. It was a much more infectious, basically, virus than anything the Chinese had to deal with in last January and February in China. And ironically, you know, the mutation that has been happening now, you know, from basically in Europe, and then, you know, with, you know, the, um, the alpha, the beta, the gamma, and South Africa, Brazil, now the delta is now finally <laughs> reaching Asia. And all of a sudden, you know, the Asian basic elimination strategy doesn't work. And rightly so doesn't work. I never thought it was going to work. Because now you've got, you know, basically the Delta, which is 50% more basically contagious than the Alpha. The Alpha was basically 100% more contagious than the Chinese. This is what's really going on. But I'm not terribly worried about this. And I'll tell you why I'm not terribly worried about this. 
If you look at the experience of alpha, gamma, beta, and their delta, they all follow a very similar pattern. And you have to look at the countries of origin for each of these basically variant. Okay? And basically in the UK, South Africa and Brazil following the outbreak of alpha, beta, and gamma. In India, which is the home of origin of delta, the number of new cases collapsed. And it's pretty fascinating because even India, what, you've got something like 20% vaccination, okay? So that's pretty impressive. The numbers have completely collapsed in India. Let's look at the UK. UK is another good example. UK, you know, because of the close ties with India, was the first Western country to get hit by Delta. And the number of cases basically went flying. And guess what? It's been coming down a lot. More than 70% is now stabilizing. Okay? This is also the reason why I think the U.S. story is going to follow a very similar pattern, which is that I think probably in the next few weeks, we ought to see basically Delta cases also starting to peak. In Asia, I think the reason why the economy has been hit is because, once again, these economies are still trying to deal with basically Delta using yesterday's medicine, which is by trying to shut down the economy, trying to basically limit it. That is not a winning strategy. The only strategy that works now is to basically, and this is why I think the UK approach is going to be really, really important. Because I don't tell you, UK saw a massive increase in cases, and they decided to basically reopen the economy, relax all restrictions. Because they decided, you know what, let's, elimination strategy doesn't work, let's just basically pursue a strategy of coexistence. Okay, if you get everybody vaccinated, you know what? Maybe we don't have to close if not many people are dying. And in fact, if you look at the mortality rate in the UK, it's about 0.2%, which is about double that of a flu, okay, for vaccinated people. I think that's what it is. So I think it's basically Asia's strategy worked in the beginning. It stopped working once Delta became much more contagious. And yet Asia continues to try to basically control it as though we were fighting the original virus. I think just like everybody else, there's going to be a learning curve. I think even Asia is going to get there. And when they get there, we're going to, we're going to decide that maybe we can live with this. Now, of course, I want to say this one big of course, which is I have no idea what's going to happen later, later this year. I mean, during the winter, because I don't tell you alpha, gamma, delta, and basically uh, gamma all developed during late fall and early winter and early spring. The fact that Delta became more infectious, now you could basically, it then defying basically vaccination. I can tell you, I'm in Israel right now. And then, you know, the, you know, the immunity rate is now less than 40% among people who receive two shots. Okay. So from that point of view, who knows what's going to be the next mutation? Is that going to basically, you know, basically become not only more contagious, but also more virulent? That is a different story. But right now, given, if we're just talking about Delta right now, I wouldn't want to be basically overly concerned about this, this being enough to derail the global recovery. Well, what, let's go back to what does this mean then for the supply side? And your view is that by and large, the, disru- the, the disruption COVID is a supply side story. And, and look, you know, I think if any listener to Odd Lots would to some extent agree, because we do a lot of episodes on supply side disruptions, shipping containers, all of that. So to some extent, there is a large agreement. If, you know, we have these sort of ongoing waves, we don't know further mutations. We, you, as you say, these sort of like 
completely stamp it out strategy is a failure against a mutation as virulent as uh, that spreads as easily as Delta. What is the prospect for supply side normalization? Like when do we see container rates normalize or what would it take for container rates to normalize? Things like that. I think I think it's going to depend on different sectors, right? You know, obviously, like for example, we all know that you know the supply crunch in semiconductors, right? That was one of the reasons why like computer prices went through the roof. But computer prices starting to come back down a bit, right? That's one of the reasons why like used car prices went through the roof because there were new, no new cars because like certain chips that were not available, so that certain new models were not available. And then actually what happened this week, this month is the reason why used car prices started to basically moderate prices is because new models are being rolled out. That's why like new car prices have been going up. But I do think so. These 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 are temporary shocks, by the way. These are temporary supply shocks. I'm not too worried about them. I'm much more concerned about potential permanent supply shock, negative supply shock. What are those? Let's think about this. Number one, as I said before, you know, you know, if COVID is going to be here to stay, okay. If it becomes the new normal, you know what? I do think many more women are going to end up staying home simply because I do think that, especially for younger children, this is going to be a major issue. Okay. And then especially, not, certainly not before the vaccine becomes widely available, which may not be the case for many years, by the way. Who knows? Okay. I can tell you that from experience because my, both of my basically uh, daughters in Israel have very young children. My grand, my, my grandsons, you know, they have not been going to kindergarten for, for a very long time. As a result, my, both of my basically daughters having to quit their job or certainly kept back on their work in order to basically look after the children. That's one major issue. I think another major issue is that COVID, if it's going to be here to stay, is also changing the skills that are required by employers. Okay. You can see very clearly in the data, you know, unemployment rate for basically people with college education has pretty much gone back to, it's almost not exactly, but very close to getting back to where we were before the crisis. Whereas people with only a high school degree, that is much less the case, which tells you that there's no doubt that it makes a big difference whether you can work from home or you cannot work from home. If you cannot, if COVID is transforming the economy in terms of the skill requirement. A very big part of our labor force may simply become unemployable. That's a negative, basically, supply shock. Other supply shock. Think about this. I think, you know, there is no doubt in my mind, you know, one of the things that, you, you know, Joe, like I, I really care a lot about is the U.S.-China trade war. Okay. There is no doubt. Nobody wants to say this, but I think the U.S.-China relationship has gotten 10 times worse under Biden than under Trump, by the way. And there is no doubt. I mean, this is why it's actually interesting. Like, you think of the U.S. economy is on fire. The Chinese basically is actually struggling to export. Now, in the past, including during 2010, the 2010-2015 recovery, it's like, well, U.S. was growing, and then they were sucking all these cheap imports from China, therefore keeping basically prices very low. Now, this is no longer the case. Okay? So, basically, what worries me much more is basically this kind of thing is a permanent supply shock that basically shifts the labor supply curve basically in. And then because of the disruption in global trade, a lot of which has become so politicized that I don't see we're going to be able to overcome them anytime soon, that is also going to reduce the aggregate supply, okay, for the global economy. So from that point of view, a lot of the advantages that were previously associated with globalization and so on and so forth. It's just not going to help us that much this time around on the inflation front. So 
I have a dumb question on this point, but it's something that um, I've been thinking about because Joe and I have been talking um, so much about the supply issue. So there's this idea of the bullwhip effect and that, you know, um, a shortage in supplies means that a company is going to over order in the next round. And then that leads to sort of overcapacity and things like that. But I'm wondering is the response to supply issues, can that be good for the wider economy? For instance, if people decide that China is too risky um, for whatever reason, whether it's COVID or something like the trade war, and they start building um, manufacturing capacity closer to home, like in the US, that would seem to potentially be a good thing. You're right. I mean, it depends for who. But just, just, just let's be very specific, right? Let's just say right now, you know, the U.S. determined to basically shut down the entire semiconductor, basically, um, production, okay, in China, right? I mean, the U.S. decided that we don't want China to be in this business at all because it's going, it threatens the U.S. hegemony too much, right? I mean, it's not even, at this point, it's not even about whether they steal from us, they don't steal from us, <laughs> or they spy from us. It's now it's like, well, we don't want them to basically threaten our competitive basically, our technological hegemony in the space. Therefore, we don't want them to be in that space, period. Which means, basically, you know what? You have to basically build these plants somewhere else, <laughs> right? Which means some companies will have to pour a lot of money into that. Which means, can you imagine in the extreme case where everything that we're currently buying from China, we now have to basically build production capacity somewhere else to build the same thing? You don't think that's going to be very expensive? <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, you know what? You know, you got to basically think about that from that point of view, which is relative to where we are. Because again, this comes back to the whole inflation story. Okay. The only reason why the stock market is trading where it's trading right now, the only reason why house prices have gone up so much, we're not even talking about today, yesterday, whatever. We're talking about the last 20 years. We've seen a massive, okay, rally in the stock market, in basically home prices, in wealth in general. And that's all because of disinflation as a result of globalization that has allowed central banks around the world to really cut interest rates to unbelievably low level. And by cutting interest rates to a very low level, you are reducing the discount rates, okay, that prices all risky assets. Because by reducing the future discounted cash flows <laughs> to today, that's why you've seen this massive asset price appreciation, okay? So now you're telling me who cares about that? Who cares about the disinflation? <laughs> Let's embrace a little bit of inflation. Then what happens to asset prices, you tell me? Okay. So from that point of view, you know, the debt, the wealth, basic explosion of the last 20 years was all thanks to, you know, globalization, which is about the integration of the Chinese economy and the global economy that kept global prices low, that allowed interest rates to go low, that allowed the kind of you know, you could argue with the globalists, the elites basically benefit from that because they're the ones who are sitting on, they own most of the wealth that benefit from the price appreciation of these assets. But nevertheless, we got to be very, very careful to think of. That's why Trump, even though he started the trade war with China, he had a very defined objective. He wanted China to play fair. He wanted China to respect U.S. intellectual property rights. He wanted, you know, all these concession betting Chinese. And from that point of view, that's why I always thought that the first agreement, the phase one agreement, was a very significant agreement. Yeah, I was probably the only person on Wall Street to have read the entire 100-page document. To me, it's still a spectacular 
the agreement. I think it should go down in history as one of the most important milestones. Unfortunately, Trump lost the election, and that agreement is now worth nothing. Okay? But the point here is that that had a very defined objective, which could potentially still put the U.S. and China into win-win position vis-a-vis each other. I can tell you for the last, all throughout 2018-19, when I was going to China, in big corporate offices, in government offices, people would come up to me and whisper in my ears, you know, David, Trump is a great man. These are Chinese people telling me Trump is a great man. Because they're saying that, you know what, reforms have been stalling in China for the last 10 years under Xi Jinping. And thanks to China, thanks to Trump, the pressure is on China to once again accelerate reform. And that's what Trump did. And this is what people don't realize. In the end, China agreed to the phase one agreement because ultimately the reformers got back into the driver's seat because of pressure from Trump. And I thought that this was going to lead to a basically a happy ending for both sides. Because at the end of the day, you know what? That's what we, that's what we all want. I mean, Tracy, you're sitting in Asia. But now with Biden, it's like, well, <laughs> gloves are off. So from that point, we're now moving from an, an economic conflict that was ultimately well-defined under the pre-administration that, that we were getting close to basically resolving to now ideological contest, which can never be resolved at this point. And that is... If you tell me, if that's what, if you want to basically start building all these expensive plants outside China and hire people, that kind of, yeah, you're going to create some jobs, but you're going to create a lot of inflation. Well, David, like I said at the beginning, it's always uh, interesting speaking to you, always provocative, and really, uh, really appreciate your insight. Uh, thanks for coming on Oddlot. No, not at all. I mean, thanks for putting up with me. And, uh-huh. and I, you know, I love coming on the Bloomberg because I know that you guys are willing to contemplate, you know, there are other alternative views out there than the mainstream ones. It was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thank you so much, guys. You know, obviously, uh, where to start? David has um, pretty, some... You know, out of consensus, as you you asked the good question, did he feel bound previously? Sort of out of consensus perspectives on a lot of stuff. But, you know, on a lot of things, like I think his uh, his views are, are worth taking uh, are worth taking seriously. At least at least several of the points are like, I you know, this is uh, this is worth thinking about and debating. I like David Wu unbound. Um, you know, he was always sort of outspoken um, while he was at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. And um, he seems to have um, taken that to a new level uh, just then. But so, for instance, his points about China kind of decoupling from the global economy, I would totally agree that that is an underappreciated risk or thing that is actually happening now in the global market. And it reminds me a lot of in early 2020, when the COVID outbreak um, first happened and China basically shut down its entire economy and the U.S., or at least the U.S. markets, just ignored it completely. And it was like, well, we spent the past two or four years worrying about the trade war with China. And, you know, that was all anyone could talk about. And now China has basically closed off and U.S. markets are doing absolutely nothing. Um, not responding to it at all. And eventually they did in March, of course, but like, I I kind of feel a a similarity with the current situation. It's not going to be like as sharp as it was in March, but I do think at some point people are going to wake up to this dynamic. 
Yeah, no, the, I, I agree. And I, I think your assessment that it has not been fully appreciated. I think I saw a tweet from you on last night or this morning about some of this rolling over in the PMIs. I that like just like the sort of like the absolute effect of the slowdown and then the ongoing supply chain uh, disruptions that that's going to cause. And, you know, we joke about this or it's not really a joke, but our very first episodes were talking about um, covid as a as a supply shock story, like the first one we did with uh, Dan Wong back in early March 2020 or maybe February, probably February 2020 was like, well, what's it going to mean for Apple and so forth? And it's interesting the degree to which we just like, oh, it's going to normalize and, you know, container prices are going to crest and so forth. And this idea that, well, maybe there is like this sort of like deeper thing going on that's not about to crest. And uh, David's point about how the approaches that Asian countries took to completely stamp out uh, the virus in the beginning may not be as effective with the uh, with the more transmittable Delta variant. Uh, Extremely interesting. Yeah. The other thing I found interesting was his contrasting of, you know, a demand side shock or recession versus the supply side and the idea that a lot of the things that policymakers are doing right now end up boosting demand and not really solving the supply issues. And so that accelerates inflation. That seems like a reasonable risk to me. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that I guess the question is, all right, we, we, you know, people in all different camps, you know, the supply side camp, the more demand focused Keynesian camp, we all like sort of like point to the same things, right? It's like, well, okay, there's the semiconductors Mm -hmm. and the containers and so forth. The question, I guess, is the degree to which, and I guess we didn't really get into it, but it's the degree to which the demand side policies have exacerbated the problem. So it's like, okay, everyone can accept that there are these supply side shocks and we can see it in the data in which categories, but like, you know, all right, used cars, was that really because of like stimulus or expanded UI or the chip shortage, mm-hmm. et cetera? So is, there's still a question of like waiting of the different factors. And look, millions of people did lose their jobs. That is a fact. Yeah. Yeah, that is very, very true. Um, well, I'm sure this isn't going to be the last time we talk about this topic. And of yeah. course, um, as you noted in the intro, inflation does tend to get people going, um, especially David Wu. Should we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Off Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, David Wu, on Twitter. He's at David Wu Unbound, although it doesn't look like he's ever tweeted, but maybe he'll start. Uh, follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.